So we are in the middle of, this is week three of, I don't know how many, of 40 days at least, of uh, 40 days of true religion. And one of the features that we wanted to emphasize in this is, is a personal involvement uh, exercise. We're trying to, after the pandemic, you know, we've been holed up a lot, and we're trying to get us to maybe reach out, even if it's people here that you haven't had a meal with or go out with or something, and we're trying to do 100 tables in 40 days. The idea is, is to begin to shape this world by truly being and displaying hospitality. So we're going to play a video we got off YouTube. We might get shut down on the internet, but this is an educational video because it, it kind of encapsulates what we want to accomplish through 100 tables. So it's, it was written, it was, it was made in 2017 by a Canadian, oh, those Canucks, um, grocery, food, whatever. Watch this. We might have to start it over. Is there sound, Jeremy? Yeah. This is lovely. <laughs> I know the song, but I can't think of it. I could sing it for you in the background. So we're gonna try it again. This does not count against my sermon time. Okay, Paul. Uh, let's start it over again. We'll get the sound right and we'll get it from the beginning. It's a little loud. That's it.
That's the goal, the vision, the purpose of 100 Tables, to just get us together. You can go out and meet people. You can invite your neighbors. You can do your home. If you haven't even eaten as a home group, just eat as a home group or whatever. We'll put your picture up if you take it according to the proper rules of etiquette of picture taking. So, uh, and we'll email them to Danny and uh, all the directions are out there. But that's what 100 Tables is about. It's, it's, to, it's to get us to think true, Pure religion impacts the world as we love one another. So in this series, we are exploring our Monday morning faith as opposed to our Sunday morning faith. What happens on Sunday is important, but what happens on Monday through Saturday is equally as important, if not more. So we explored Monday morning from the perspective of the book of Amos last Sunday morning in the Old Testament. This morning we're in James, if you have your Bibles, James chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. That's our text. It's not very long. It's not like nine chapters like Amos. But to be clear, James does care about what's going on on Sunday mornings. He's going to start talking about that in chapter 2. But we're just going to look at these two verses in chapter 1. He warns us really that no amount of, of outward religious activity can compensate if your tongue just does what it wants to do or your heart's not having any compassion or your character's unholy. So he gives us three marks of true or pure, as he puts it, religion. Let's read the text, James 1, 26. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that our God and Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Three marks of true or pure religion in James 1. Mark number one, your conversation. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. It's just keep a tight rein. It's, it's the concept in the original of, of bridling a horse's mouth, which is why some translations will say, don't let your mouth be unbridled, uncontrolled. Some people just have too many opinions and they share them rather quickly. And because they have an answer for everything and they have the gift of the clever put down, you know, they wreak havoc wherever they go. Sometimes you just need to say, maybe at work, you know, feel free to not have an opinion about this. It's okay. Some signs of an unbridled tongue, vulgar speech, obscenity, indecent language, racial, ethnic insults, humor that's intended to put somebody else down, if you're mean, you gossip, you rumors, you spread them, you publicly criticize your spouse or your children, you can yell and scream and threat and cheap shots and you just talk without listening, you unbridled tongue. Why is this important? Because Jesus says it is out of the heart that the mouth speaks. So what's going on in your heart comes out in your mouth. 
Proverbs 18.21 says the tongue has the power of life and death. So every time you open your mouth, either life comes out or death. The Bible speaks of the throat as an open grave in Romans 3. If there's death on the inside, it's going to come out in your words. Did you know that the average person speaks 16,000 words every day? That is the equivalent of a 64-page book every day. 64 pages today, 64 pages tomorrow. That's a lot of books, one day after another. If we read your book today, what would we learn about your religion? How did you react under pressure? What did you say to your wife or your children? What did you say in those offhanded comments you made about your friends? How did you respond when you were criticized? And if that doesn't terrify you just a little bit, then you're a saint far beyond the rest of us or you're clueless about yourself, one or the other. In our days of Twitter and email, we just feel like we need and can share our opinion immediately. And sometimes it's better for us as believers to, to not. Maybe we need to pray for the gift of silence. It is said once of a famed linguist, he knew how to be silent in seven languages. But James draws a shocking conclusion when he says that the uncontrolled tongue makes your religion, your faith, worthless or useless. Because unless your faith changes your heart, what good is it? It isn't. A true walk with Jesus begins right here. Bridle your tongue. Mark number two is your compassion Verse 27, the first part of it. Religion that God and our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. This doesn't get much clearer. To look after orphans and widows in their distress. Okay? Compassion is aroused. It's a kind of love when, when, when you're confronted with those who suffer, with those who, who are vulnerable. And he says a pure and a, and a faultless religion then cares about that. It moves them to action. It's not a self-centered faith. We don't just look at needs and just walk away. Compassion never substitutes for another worship service or another Bible study. Sometimes you've got to roll up your sleeves and get involved, which is kind of a big idea here in this 40 Days campaign. Pure religion sees the distress of the world, and it moves to meet that need. It gets its hands dirty because it comes from a religion that is produced with compassion. James singles out two groups that need this compassion, orphans and widows. And then he adds the qualifying phrase, in their distress. He means that those who are alone and forgotten, they precisely need our care because they don't have anyone to care for them which echoes over and over what the Old Testament has said, Exodus 22, early on. Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. Defend the cause of orphans. Fight for the rights of widows. Isaiah 1. Zechariah 7. Do not oppress the widow or the orphan. Widows have little legal protection in the first century. That's why Jesus, he excoriated 
the, the, the religious leaders of his day because they devoured widows' houses. And yet they went and made really long public prayers for everybody to hear. They made a show of their religion while in the background they're taking advantage of widows. They would convince them to give their money away and give it to them until they were destitute. They devoured the money until she was helpless and penniless. You see, a mark of true religion is this. Will we care for those whose need is so great that they can never repay us? Sometimes people talk about people, you know, we need to reach as a church. They usually mean the rich and the famous and the well-connected. They don't usually mean the orphan and the widow. Because what do they have to offer us? Well, faith, hope, and love. To put the matter that way isn't to argue against reaching the upper class. Rich and famous people, they need Jesus too. But we need to recapture this perspective of James. We need to care for those who can never pay us back. God bless those who care for the widows. God bless those who care for single mothers. God bless the nursery worker or the children's choir leader, or those who take in foster children, or those who adopt children, those who care for the disabled, those who support the orphan or speak up for the unborn, or support crisis pregnancy centers. See, the religion God approves cares for those who cannot care for themselves. It includes orphans and widows, but it doesn't end there. It has to include the unborn and the sick and the dying and the homeless and the disabled and the immigrants and the victims of sex trafficking and the prisoners and the refugees. Anyone that the world, they're just going to overlook them. We shouldn't. We should have the compassion of Christ. A genuine religion is seen in how you speak in how you are compassionate. And mark number three is your character. He says in the last part of verse 27, and keep yourself from being polluted by this world. See, genuine religion keeps you from being stained by the world and its system. Imagine a little boy coming home from school. He's been told every day, don't jump in the mud, don't jump in the mud. But this one day, you know, he's just feeling, you know, and he jumps in the mud. And what's mom going to say when he gets home? That's the picture James has in mind. We live in a dirty world. If we are not careful, we will be stained by moral compromise. We need to see this connection, though, between that mark and the one right in front of it. See, in order to care for the widows and the orphans, you have to go where they are. But in our going, we cannot lower our standards. We can't somehow compromise our convictions. Somehow we have to find ways to get deeply involved in this hurting world while, while we make the wisest choices we can possibly make. We need to know where our limits are and stay within them. I can do this, I can go there, I can't do this. But notice, James doesn't say Keep others unstained by the world. Because that's where we usually go. And we judge each other. 
I'm not called to be the moral judge of anyone else. I am called to judge my own actions. I am only accountable for the choices I make. And it's a good thing when we're in the world. It's a bad thing when the world is in us. Conversation, compassion, character. They mark true religion. But at this moment and in this series, we need to drill down a little bit. We need to go a little bit deeper. Because how does what we say and what we feel and, and, and how we are impact the respo our response to people with real needs? You see, one, what is underlying this issue in James and in Amos and in our world today? What is the problem which promotes our compassion and puts it into action? Normally, it's poverty. We want to alleviate poverty. But how do we do that without hurting the poor? Well, you have to begin by defining poverty. Take your sermons. I want you to write a quick little definition of poverty. What is poverty? I'm serious. How do you and I define poverty? Because without defining poverty, compassion is going to lead us astray. So think about that. What is poverty? After World War II, we're going to come back to that. I'm leading you into a trap, you know. After World War II, the Allies established the World Bank to finance the rebuilding of Europe, which, which was just ravaged by the war. And those efforts were actually remarkably successful. Europe grew and, and the economy grew and, and they would lend them money on very generous terms and it promoted this economic growth and it reduced poverty in Europe. And it was great. So what did they do? Then they decided, well, let's do this worldwide. We can't, you know, how do, if it worked well in Europe, it must work well everywhere else. The problem is, the next 50 years, it doesn't work so well. They couldn't solve the problem of poverty. So in the 1990s, they did what they probably should have done a long time ago, is they asked experts, what is poverty? And who did they ask? They asked the poor. And the results were published in a three-volume series called Voices of Poverty. Here are some responses about how poor people define poverty. From Moldova, for a poor person, everything is terrible. Illness, humiliation, shame. We are cripples. We're afraid of everything. We depend on everyone. No one needs us. We are like garbage that everyone wants to get rid of. Guinea-Bissau, which is West Africa, I looked it up. When I don't have any food to bring my family, I borrow mainly from neighbors and friends. I feel ashamed standing before my children when I have nothing to help feed the family. I am not well when I'm unemployed. It's terrible. Latvia. During the past two years, we have not celebrated any holidays with others. We cannot afford to invite anyone to our house, and we feel uncomfortable visiting others without bringing a present. The lack of contact leave one, leaves one depressed. We know that. 
It creates a constant feeling of unhappiness. Cameroon, the poor have a feeling of powerlessness and an inability to make themselves heard. Senegal, your hunger is never satisfied. Your thirst is never quenched. You can never sleep until you're no longer tired. Ecuador, what determines poverty or well-being? The indigenous people's destiny is to be poor. Did you hear how they defined poverty? How do you define poverty? In the West, we define poverty as this, right? A lack of material things. You just don't have stuff. But do you hear these voices? See, poverty is far from simply a lack of material things. It is much more psychological. It is much more social. They talk about what? Shame? Inferiority? Powerlessness? Humiliation? Fear? Hopelessness? Depression? Social isolation? Not having a voice? We talk about poverty. We talk about the lack of food and money and clean water and medicine and housing. Now, this is not an academic exercise because the way we define poverty is going to play a role in, in how we are going to deal and have compassion on those who are poor. So what's a biblical framework? What is biblically going on with this whole poverty thing? Well, if we believe the primary cause of poverty is a lack of knowledge, we will do what? Educate the poor. We'll educate them out of this. If we believe the primary cause of poverty is oppression by powerful people, then we work for social justice, and that will drive our compassion. If we believe the primary cause of poverty is the personal sins of the poor, then we will evangelize and disciple the poor. And historically, that's all we've done. If we believe the primary cause of poverty is a lack of stuff, then give them stuff. When someone calls the office on a practical level, needing help with an overdue electric bill, should we just pay it? We can. Is the problem a lack of money or is the problem a lack of self-discipline to be able to keep a steady job? How do you know what the problem really is? That takes some time, it takes some effort, it takes getting the right information. And then, do you treat the symptoms, no money, or the underlying disease? Because if you just throw money at them, that can do more harm than good in the long run. See, the causes for poverty around the world, they are very complex, even though the disease itself presents itself with the same symptoms. You have to approach poverty like a doctor looks at a patient. Does a doctor only treat the symptoms, or does a doctor then look for the underlying cause? 
Because if you treat the symptoms, you could actually hurt the patient. A proper diagnosis is absolutely critical for helping the poor without hurting them. So how do we diagnose a complex problem like poverty? That's going to require one thing we don't have, divine wisdom. But we do have the Bible. And the Bible is not a textbook on, on poverty alleviation. But it does give us some valuable insights into the nature of human beings, who we are, of our history and our culture and of God. And all of those together can point us in the right direction if we have the compassion of true religion. We have to care. So let's explore the fundamental nature of poverty. What, what does the Bible say about it? The Bible says basically we don't get to do whatever we want to with this thing called life. There's some, there's some structure here. He has designed us to be a certain thing and to operate in a certain way in all of our relationships. Number one, we have a relationship with God. We're called to glorify Him, all of us. Second, we have a relationship with ourselves. Okay? We have an inherent worth and dignity. We're not God. We have a high calling from God to reflect him and to rule in this, in this world. We're made in his image. Number three, we have a relationship with other people. He's put us here on this planet. We're not islands. We've got to love one another. And fourth, we have relation with creation. He's made us stewards of this planet, people who understand it and protect it and subdue it and manage it. It's his creation, and he gives us the keys and says, now deal with it. So we are multifaceted as human beings. We have all of these relationships. Therefore, if we are going to deal seriously with the issue of poverty, we have to approach it in a multifaceted way too. In the West, what do we do? We reduce it to the physical. And we in the West, we, we focus all of our poverty alleviation efforts just on material solutions. Take an offering and send the money. But we're more, we're more than that. We as people are spiritual and social and psychological and physical beings. So we've got to think more holistically about this issue. Because dirt matters. So do giraffes. So do water wells. So do families and schools and music and crops and government and business. See, you've got to engage with the entire creation, including the culture. And then we have to begin to think about poor communities as part of the good that God has created. They're part of the world that he created and that Jesus is sustaining. They're not filth. They're not rubble. Though they've been touched by the impact of sin, See, we are not bringing Christ to poor communities. He has been active in those communities since the creation of the world. Part of working in poor communities involves discovering and appreciating what God has already been doing in those communities all along. He's been there. Just because we haven't been there doesn't mean he hasn't been there. So we come to all of this with a sense of humility and a sense of awe. 
Now, of course, they might not recognize that God's been at work. In fact, they might not even know who God is. So part of our task might include introducing the community to who God is and to helping them to appreciate what he's been doing for them since the creation of the world. And I say that all of this to come to this point. How do we describe the fundamental nature of poverty? What's going on? It has to be more than just a lack of stuff. Bryant Myers defined it this way in Walking with the Poor. Poverty is the result of relationships that do not work. That are not just. That are not for life. That are not harmonious or enjoyable. Poverty is the absence of shalom, peace, in all of its meanings. So, if that's our definition of poverty, who are the poor? Think about it. If poverty is rooted in the brokenness of the foundational relationships of life that God has created, then who's poor? The fall in Genesis 3 is so comprehensive that every human being is poor. Not in the sense of, 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 of not experiencing these four relationships. They, 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 we don't experience them in the way God intended. That makes us poor. And after spending time in Amos and now in James, one of the things I want us to learn is this. Until we embrace our mutual brokenness, our work with those in need is likely to do more harm than good. Until we embrace our mutual brokenness, our work with those in need is likely to do far more harm than good. Shame, which is a poverty of being, is a major part of the brokenness that the poor experience in their relationships with themselves. Instead of seeing themselves as being created in the image of God, the poor often feel they are inferior to other people. Therefore, what happens? Well, they don't take the initiative then and seize the opportunities to improve their situation. They're locked into material poverty because of how they view themselves. And then there's this, the economically rich. We suffer a poverty of being too. We have God complexes which is a rather subtle and unconscious sense of superiority because we believe that we have achieved our wealth through our own efforts. We did this. Therefore, we've been anointed to decide what's best for low-income people because they're always inferior. So it seems to me we are part of the problem. Do you want to help the poor? Why? Why does somebody want to help the poor? Be honest. What truly motivates us? Do you really love poor people and want to serve them, or do you have other motives? Honestly, what part of what motivates me to help the poor is a, is a felt need because I want to accomplish something significant in my life. I want to feel like I've pursued a noble cause. It's an ugly reality, but it's what Paul says is true about the human heart. When I want to do good, there is evil right there with me. 
And here's what I'm trying to say. One of the biggest problems in many poverty alleviation efforts is that our plan and how we do it makes poverty worse, not better. And the poverty of being of the economically poor, we encourage that. We help them to feel more inferior and more shame. The story is told in in the book, When Helping Hurts, of Creekside Community Church. It was an inner city church of yuppies, of young urban professionals in a large downtown area. It was near a housing project. It was full of people with, with high rates of unemployment, They had a lot of domestic violence, a lot of drugs, you know, an inner city project, teen pregnancy. And most of the people in that church, these young folks, they didn't want to go into that housing project. But the pastor's like, yeah, we got to show them God's love. How are we going to do this? And so one Christmas, they decide, you know, it's time to do something. It's time to make a change. So what can we do? Well, believing that poverty is primarily a lack of material resources, they're going to address the material things. We can take these children Christmas presents. And so they did. They went around singing Christmas carols and giving children gifts. It was a little awkward at first, but, but the, the smiles on the kids just made it all worthwhile. That went so well, they decided to give Easter baskets at Easter and turkeys at Thanksgiving. But after a few years, the pastor was struggling getting people motivated to keep doing this year after year until someone was honest enough to tell him why. Someone in the church said, Pastor, we're tired of helping, of trying to help these people. We have been bringing them things for several years now, and their situation never improves. They just sit there in the same situation year in and year out. Have you ever noticed that there are no men in the apartments when we deliver the toys? The residents are all unwed mothers who just keep having babies in order to collect bigger and bigger welfare checks. They don't deserve our help. In reality, there was a different reason that there were few men in these apartments. The the fathers could hear the carols outside. They looked through the peephole, saw the presence, and they ran out the back door. They were embarrassed. And for a lot of reasons, low-income African-American males sometimes struggle to find and keep jobs, which contributes to a deep sense of shame and inadequacy, both of which makes it even more difficult to apply for jobs. And the last thing these fathers needed was a group of middle to upper middle class Caucasians providing Christmas presents to their children presents that they themselves could not afford to buy. You see, in trying to help material poverty in the giving of these presents, Creekside Community Church has increased these fathers' poverty of being. And ironically, this likely made the fathers even less able to apply for a job. And while the church folks, while that's going on inside these apartments, the church folks, they develop a subtle sense of pride Because we are doing our thing, helping them. And we are blessing them so well. We are so kind. But eventually they experience compassion fatigue. Because they didn't see what they wanted to see. But the poverty of being increased for them as well. 
See, there's a lesson. We must overcome our materialism. And we need to see poverty in more relational terms. And what's that going to require? It will require true religion. We're going to watch our words. We're going to develop our compassion in holiness. It's going to require us to understand our own brokenness. It's going to require that we embrace the message of the cross in deep and profound ways. It will require us to say every day, I am not okay. You are not okay. But Jesus, he can fix us both. And that's the only way we will truly show compassion to the poor. That's how the religion James talks about, how that will be pure in us. We can help them to recover their dignity, even as we recover from our sense of pride. It'll require more than taking an offering. Because here's the dilemma of James 1.27. We are supposed to fully engage in the world. So we have to go get our hands dirty in the muck and the mire of the human experience. We have to understand the dynamics, however, of the situations in which we enter. The first step for many of us in the West is to overcome our God complexes. We need true biblical compassion. We need to watch our speech. We need to keep ourselves pure. The poor and the widow and the orphans of this world face a struggle to survive and feelings of helplessness, of anxiety, of, of suffocation. They're desperate, things about which we know nothing. Most of the time, they are trapped by multiple interconnected factors. Sure, they've got insufficient resources, but they're very vulnerable, they're powerless, they're isolated. They get sick and it just wipes everything out. They are like bugs caught in a spider's web. Imagine being caught in such a web and every time you move, you just get more caught. It's miserable, and every time you, you move, you bring yourself more miserable, more misery. So eventually you just stop. We do not understand that kind of life because we believe we have a choice. We can make things change. And in our situation, that's true, we can. But the lack of freedom to be able to make meaningful choices is a distinguishing feature of poverty around the world. They don't have those choices. And the clear call of the Bible is to have a heart for them. 1 John 3, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and truth. Truth. Find out what's really going on. In all of this, we have the example of a Savior who left the beauty of heaven to be born in a barn, a stable. He left the purity of heaven to redeem the impure of this world. He walked among us. He talked among us. He lived with us, he ate with us, he laughed with us, he wept with us, 
He rubbed shoulders with the gluttons and the drunkards. He knew the Pharisees, and he called them hypocrites. The prostitutes evidently knew him, and they recognized him as a kind man, different from all the others they had met. But because he was the Son of God, he lifted the fallen, and he did not fall himself. If we're to, to obey what James has saying, we need Christ living within us. We need to bridle our tongue. We need to reach out to the hurting. We need to keep ourselves unstained by the world. Will our true religion motivate us to do the research, the hard work we need to do to get serious? Because we're going to come to the conclusion more than ever, we just need Jesus. Did you read the verse for today? Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to who? The brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Maybe making our religion true for us needs to start right there. Let's pray. Father, these issues are so complex and I'm, I'm no expert moved with compassion and so open our eyes to how we can be involved with the orphan the widow with the fatherless that we might understand that we're not okay and they're not okay but you can fix us that we might breathe the life-giving hope of a savior that we can have the insight we need to help people fix relationships. That we might listen to you and that you might help our religion to be true, to be pure, to be worth the death of a savior. In Jesus' name, amen.